0: Live Above the Noise, the Choiceful Family Podcast. Welcome to Live Above the Noise, the Choiceful Family Podcast. I'm your host Wayne Yurcha, and I'm here with my podcast partner, developmental and educational psychologist and media expert, Dr. Rob Ryer. This is episode number 28. And if it's the first time you're joining us, we want you to know that we have created this podcast with one aim: to help provide you with the new all-important tools, skills, and strategies you need to protect your children and family and prepare them for a safe, happy, and meaningful future. In other words, this podcast was designed to help you and your family live above the noise. Now, in our last episode, we had a fascinating and thought-provoking conversation with Dr. Dan Siegel. Dr. Siegel is a clinical professor at the UCLA School of Medicine He's the executive director of the Mindsight Institute, and he's a New York Times bestselling author. And two of the things that we talked about in that episode were in-group and out-group distinctions, and the idea of interconnectedness, which are topics of really critical importance today. And we wanted to follow up on that. So in this episode, we are grateful to be joined by a good friend and colleague, John Reed. John is the founder and CEO of We Are Sky, a company dedicated to pro-social, elevated branding located in Los Angeles. We've asked John to join us today to share with us his compelling personal story and insights regarding racial injustice growing up as a person of color in Oakland, California. Now we want to talk about these things in the context of something that is the focus of this podcast, and that is choicefulness which is comprised of three things, our awareness, our ability, and our control. So John, welcome to Live Above the Noise, and thank you so much for being willing to share your story
1: with us today. We really appreciate it. Absolutely, Uh, Wayne and Rob. First, I wanna say thank you for allowing me to be a guest here on the podcast. I love what you guys are talking about. I think it's some of the most important dialogue that could be happening right now, so thank you to you guys. And um, I know this has a lot to do with uh, using my story sort of as a lens to look at systemic racism through. In regards to, you know, answering the question of how I experienced or what I experienced when it came to some of the issues that we're seeing today, this story really starts when I discovered that the world was broken and confronted myself with the question of what made me want to work for change. So I grew up in the beautiful city of Oakland, California, um, up, upstate in Northern California. And I was lucky. I was lucky to have the upbringing uh, that I did. My parents, I love my parents. If they're listening, hi mom. they weren't perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but they worked hard to provide for my brothers, two brothers. And we did our part to try to be good kids and stay out of trouble. And uh, growing up in Oakland, Through its history, I learned a lot of great things about arts and creativity. I learned a lot about diversity. I don't know if if everyone knows this, but it's literally a melting pot of different types of people all in one place that for the most part live together in, in a pretty cool harmony. And growing up there, I learned about the importance of fighting for one's identity and one's rights. You know, as you know, it's been a place of divergent thinking and new ideas and innovation and civil rights. So I'm really grateful to have those different views and perspectives as a part of my upbringing. But it also taught me some of the darker realities of the world. In short, I discovered that the world was broken pretty early on. And what does
0: that mean to you, John, when you say that the world was broken?
1: Um, When I think back as a kid, I remember going to sleep to the sounds of shootouts, car chases, people fighting in the streets. You know, it was, it was scary when it was close to the house, right? These loud sounds. But over time, it became kind of the background soundtrack to my childhood, as crazy as that may sound. yeah. And eventually, my brothers and I, we just kind of got used to it. We'd be out playing catch or playing basketball or in the house doing whatever we did as kids. And, um, you know, we kind of thought that that was the way life was. That was normal. But one morning, I remember waking up. It was a Saturday. And I remember the mood in my house being very somber. And I did like every kid does. You know, When you're seven or eight years old, you go and see what are your parents doing, maybe jump in bed with them and hang out. I remember looking for my dad and he was outside and he was standing with a water hose spraying down the the concrete out in front of the house. Apparently the night before, a, a woman had gotten shot and killed right in front of our front porch. And I remember you know, the sense of somberness that he had on his face. And I remember, you know, the sense of responsibility of just taking care of the house in this way. Um, But I remember asking the questions of what happened and and why it happened, uh, but not really going further beyond that because it was sort of a scary topic for a seven-year-old. Shortly after that, I remember in uh, junior high, maybe it was pre-junior high, our elementary school was locked down because kids from a rival school came with knives and came to jump us private school kids and us being scared because we'd never seen anything like that before. But once again, with this noise kind of being in the background, we just sort of added it to our understanding of the world and how it worked. We knew that it wasn't safe and it wasn't right per se, but we thought maybe this is just how life, life is. I remember being pulled over and stopped and frisked more times than I care to remember. And feeling the sense of, this is extremely unfair and violating, but powerless at the same time. Um, I remember getting harassed by a group of police officers in the summer of 1997. I was uh, with a bunch of buddies and we went to a concert to go check out our favorite bands. And we decided to leave early because we were going to go to the local Denny's or something like that and just hang out and do what teenagers do and as we were leaving what the world now knows is a skirmish line as from all of the uh, visuals and scenes we see on the news with uh, all the recent protests and riots and things like that uh, one started to form around my buddy and I my best friend and I as we walked back to his car you know 16 years old he just gotten his license and we were walking back to his car and they approached us and we were just walking back to the car and they got closer and we continued walking back to the car wondering hmm I wonder what this this is about. And then they got really close. And then we got really scared and nervous. It was maybe about a mile walk from the concert to the car. And being that there was no one else out on the streets because everyone else was still in the concert, we had left early, we started to become extremely aware of our vulnerability. And as they got closer to us, one of the officers said, walk faster. And we thought wow that's strange because we're already walking pretty fast but there's no one else out here there's no sense of danger or anything so we're not quite sure what's going on and we continued to proceed and then the officer then screamed i said walk faster and he said it so loud that it made me turn and look and as i looked i saw him strike my best friend in the back who wasn't even watching with his baton and my my buddy you know lunged forward almost fell but he kept his balance and and we kind of looked at each other while while maintaining our <laughs> our gate to the car, and we both had this mutual understanding that you know in this moment, we were at the mercy of the people who were supposed to be protecting us i I will never forget the look on his face of just pure helplessness and the feeling that I had of helplessness in that you know I couldn't do anything in the situation to help my friend or even understand what was really going on. Uh, we eventually made it to the car and they left us alone and we went home. But we went home in silence, really having this feeling that um, the world shouldn't be like this, and we should have some place where we can go to voice our distress, file a complaint for there to be some sort of accountability or justice for what had just happened. But there was nothing. And from that day, that was one of those moments that solidified for me that the world might not be as safe as I wanted it to be or as as it was for other people. And I have other stories that could vividly paint the pictures of, you know, this sensation of, of not having safety in your world, in your neighborhood, but maybe not even in your own skin. And um and that's when I discovered that the world wasn't perfect. Maybe even we could say it was broken.
0: You know, when you talk about that kind of a vulnerability and feeling that way I and mean, the lack of safety. What does that do to your, um, just to your identity? Who does that make you when you never feel like you can
1: actually be who you really are? That's a great question. Um, I think, you know, this um, this question is a really important one. Um, I was, like I said, I was lucky to have two parents who were present and who were encouraging, you know, who were supportive and put us in places and around people that reinforced our sense of self-worth. But that doesn't mean that it always worked. And what it does early on is it plants a seed, or maybe even a weed, depending on how you look at it, an idea that's hard to uproot that you may not necessarily be, how, how do I put this? there's a seed that's planted very early on that that grows up and it's not even a conscious effect or result but there's something that wedges in your subconscious that gives you the sense of doubt about your identity and your self-worth and it manifests itself in you know should i should i try to go to a specific college or should i try to get a certain type of job or should I try to be excellent and compete with other people? Uh, am I am I worthy of of success? When there have been many of society's structures and systems that have already told me that I am not as valid or as valuable or um, equal to everyone else. There's sort of this this story or this narrative that gets planted in your head that maybe you aren't as good or important or as valuable or as talented uh, as someone who doesn't look like you and you don't say that out loud you definitely don't acknowledge it to other people but it comes out in the choices that you might make or the things that you might try to do and it's sort of this learned limitation that you know you sort of are are given that doesn't necessarily have a visual representation, but it's absolutely there and it impacts the way that you choose or decide to live your life. To me, it feels like that would be as devastating
0: as some of the overt acts that demean you or that that cause you to, to feel this way. The, the internalization of that would seem to be something that would be just incredibly important in the sort of the future that you that you try for. And would you say that you found a way to go beyond that? Because, you know, I, I mean, I'm hopeful as everyone's hopeful that right now that there's going to be change that happens, you know, in our world and in the United States in particular, but, you know, everywhere really. But let's face it, that's going to even if it happens, it's going to take time. So is there something that you did that allowed you to go beyond that? Or is that always there, but you just fight it every day and you make the choices to to find another way? Or how did you continue to keep moving in a situation that in many ways just seems so devastating to your personal identity and your personal growth?
1: Yeah. Um, it's funny, even as a thirty something year old you know one of the beautiful things about entrepreneurship is that it it's challenging and it exposes you you know you're called to lead you're called to be responsible you're called to have integrity you're called to communicate and your character shows up and in recent years, even in recent months, I have had to do a significant amount of like emotional work to deal with some of those seeds that I said were planted that had never been uprooted. Um, it sticks with you. It absolutely sticks with you. And it doesn't just go away. I think what I learned through all of those different scenarios and stories, those experiences that I had, I think you learn how to move with it, not necessarily move beyond it, but you go on with your life. It's um, You learn how to survive. You know, You learn how to store that away, but do what you need to do to continue to make it through life. And I think a lot of us can say that, yeah, that's the experience that we've had. We, we don't necessarily have or place a huge emphasis on mental health, especially in the Black community. It's something that I would love to see growth in, and development there. And so you just internalize it, you pack it away, you store it away, you cope with it, and you just try to make the best out of your situation.
2: You know, one of the one of the things, John, that comes up for me is uh, we talk about noise all the time. And, you know, we have focused earlier in the podcast on tech media consumerism. But the definition, the way we speak about it is distraction, distortion, disruption and overload. And there's a whole other way to look at this on a personal level, which is the distortion of the value system in the culture, along with The disruption of developmental growth for people where the distortion occurs. So it's, it's sort of looking at personal noise different than social noise or the societal noise. And it's really profoundly disrupting for internal noise that begins to be the end result of external noise that distorts and disrupts. So, uh, it's an interesting tie in with regard to how noise is relative to personal experiences.
1: Yeah, it's interesting that you say that and I'm glad you brought up this idea about noise. It's sort of an interesting dichotomy or it's an interesting paradox because when you define it as things that distort or disrupt you know sometimes you know the things that are in my or you know people like me our internal dialogue it's things like you're not going to get that job because the other guy, he looks the part. Or you're not going to get that scholarship because you don't have the track record or you don't have the background that that student had. So don't even try. The odds are stacked against you, just like they've always been. Um, You won't be given a fair shake because this is how it always is. And no one's No one's changed it. The people that tried to change it were either assassinated or ostracized, you know, our heroes are oftentimes martyrs. (laughs) And that being the greatest examples of who we look up to, always ending in in the negative, it it wears on you and it creates this internal dialogue that absolutely distorts and disrupts what we might naturally think and do and aspire to, to be and aspire to become. And it comes sometimes in a whisper. you know. Sometimes you can't even hear it. It's just a feeling of, you know what? I can't do that. Or why even try? Or here we go again. And I think it's important that the individual can come to a place where they can identify that that's what's going on so that they can hopefully make a change.
2: Well, you know what's so amazing too is there are still people on this planet that have the bootstraps theory. And it's like, it makes no psychological sense whatsoever. So anybody that's still hanging on to that idea of just pull yourself up by your bootstraps when distortion and disruption has such a a devastating effect on that developmental unfolding is just completely out of sync with psychology and especially developmental psychology and, and how it actually works. And that's still highly predominant you know in society that bootstraps idea
1: yeah and there were times where you know i took that ideology and and ran with it and and tried to make it a positive thing okay so i do have power or some agency with, over my own life to try to to do that to pull myself up by my own bootstraps even though we know now that that's such a you know a false a false way of looking at the world and what reality really represents But it definitely also is a huge part of our narrative and our feelings about how we have to respond or react to the context that we live in. I remember having conversations with my mom, and I think a lot of kids growing up, like I grew up, or just black kids in general, they have this talk. You know, there's the talk of if you get pulled over, this is what you do. You have to put your hands on the steering wheel, take the keys out of the ignition. Make sure you say, sir, ma'am, look at the police officer. You know, don't make any quick moves. You don't want to get hurt. You know, if you don't follow these instructions, you may not make it home. Right. That's one of those conversations that we hate to have to have, but they're happening in, in homes all over the country, even to this day. But another one is, another conversation is: in order to succeed in life, in order for you to have a future, you have to be 10 times smarter and better and savvier and more polished and professional than your colleagues who are not Black, than your colleagues who don't have the address on their resume that you have, that might be in the urban neighborhood, or they may not have a name that sounds like yours. You have to not only pull yourself up by your bootstraps, but you have to pull yourself up by your bootstraps at a level and an altitude that's 10 times higher than your contemporaries. And as helpful as I think our parents are trying to be in those moments and i and i do think there's a there's there's some truth in that it also sets a huge expectation on the individual of what they need to do in order to like i said be successful and that's a lot of pressure that's a lot of weight that's added from our parents to us but then taken on by us to apply to ourselves. It's like we're our own biggest critics because we know that our future depends on us being 10 times better than our quote-unquote competition. Mm. And sometimes it's crushing. And I think there's a lot of my friends and peers, because it was so crushing, they just they couldn't do it. They could not stand up to that level of quote-unquote excellence or performance, if you will, um, that was needed. And they went other directions. They Gave up on life at an early age, um, gave up on their dreams because it was it was too much to ask. And
0: when you do conform to that idea, when you, when you do feel that that is what you have to do, is there a sense of non-authenticity mm. that kind of grows in you from the standpoint of saying, okay, I've managed to get to this particular level, but why do I have to play this game just to be seen as valuable as someone else is but have to do so much more to do it is that something that you feel
1: well um i can i can definitely speak for myself and i think some of my peers i definitely think that when you have sort of this never ending mark to hit of performance and excellence there is this inevitable imposter syndrome that you experience you never feel like you're good enough you never feel like you're you're excellent because That 10 times bar (laughs) is is always so tall. And so even though you may be great, even though you may be excellent in what you do in your field or in your endeavors, you always are looking over your shoulder of yourself, if, if that makes sense. You're always looking and feeling like, I need to do more in order to protect myself and protect my future. I can't leave it up to other people to respect who I am or understand the value of myself or what I bring to the table. I have to make sure that I always show them excellence. I always show them that I deserve to be there. Um, It's exhausting and it doesn't always have positive results.
0: When I think of some of the stuff we've talked about on this program, and we've talked about kids' development and where the overuse of tech will impair development, I don't think anything would impair development as much as feeling like that no matter what you do it may not be enough
2: there's another element too you know because i i happened to have a developmentally in my my story as i was exploring the idea uh at 18 years of age what to be who to be you know where i was going to go from here i i did have a glimpse of the inside workings of uh law enforcement by becoming a police record clerk at the Pasadena Police Department, where I was going to school, high school. And it was it was kind of like an entry point to becoming a cop, but you got your feet wet and you got to experience a little bit of what it was like to be in the space of uh, law enforcement on a daily basis and watch them work. And uh, I spent about six months or eight months, but I did have a dramatic experience that is actually really, really important to this conversation because every day I got to watch groups of officers come down into the area where I was responsible for both the PBX machine and running records. And I'd listen to them and I'd be there in that same room watching their uh, how they operated. And from a power perspective and from a worldview perspective, there were Uh, And it's the reason I bailed out after only a couple months of doing this, because I said, holy cow, there was an excitement that took place when three or four officers got together and were discussing how they were going to bust somebody or what needed to happen. And there was absolutely glee with regard to the conversations that took place in terms of how they were going to manifest power. And I realized at that time that this is a power pathway that's rooted in early development, whether you pick the power pathway of physical, emotional domination or some other form of power, you choose it and you find careers that support it. And you could see that it was unidimensional. It was not open to more empathic understanding. It was basically a unidimensional physical approach to how power works. And I realized at that point, uh, this happened several ways with friends of mine that I gradually, uh, that were athletes and became law uh, officers and so forth, that I moved away from because the limitation was uh, there's lots of ways to be powerful in this world. And if you focus on just the physical and the emotional forms of domination of others and at the level of domination. And that's it for you. Then you enter into a circle of people that have that same power strategy. And I think that's what's going on with regard to the current uh, situation that we see. And that's what makes that circle of influence in law enforcement so difficult to change. And it has to be revamped. From the bottom up, there's no quick fixes for this. It's like selecting individuals that have a wider understanding of the range of power and are trained to use it in multiple dimensions instead of the training being in the physical and emotional dominance dimension only. And until that happens, we're not going to see what we need to see in terms of significant change
0: over the long, long term. So, Rob, when you're referring to the other. Power pathways or power styles that someone might have. If you were going to revamp the police departments or whatever, and you were looking for individuals, what were those styles that you're referring to?
2: Well, you know, we look at it like having six styles. You have the physical, and you have the emotional, and then the social, and the intellectual, and the ethical, and the transpersonal or transcendent spiritual power styles. And all of those are ways to become successful in the world and move forward. And each one of those power styles operates along a spectrum of abuse to non-abuse. It's like a continuum, all the way from abusive power to a cooperative power and nurturing powers. It's like a two-dimensional way to look at it. So my experience with my athletic friends in my immature state of human development, at 18 years of of age, was I could gain power by being a great athlete. And so I learned that. I hung around with the guys that supported that. And I thought, that's it. That's what you do. Until you get smarter and you grow out of that and you learn some lessons. And then you say, wait a minute, I think maybe intellectual power, I'm neglecting that. Let me go to school. And if you happen to be lucky enough to tap in to your dreams or to something that you really love, you know, that is a passion for you, that, that can nurture that intellectual power, then that starts to unfold and adds to your range of power. And on top of that, then it allows you to understand ethics and social power and transpersonal power. So it's an unfolding. And the trick is, and I think John alluded to this, is if people get stuck Somewhere along the way, because of this disruption and distortion that occurs in the noise that they happen to be surrounded by, they can't have the opening to those other forms of power. They don't get to have that, and therefore they they take on the worldview of this is the way it is. And that's where the rub is, and that's why the system currently needs complete Revamping to open up the multiple power styles. That's what's going to alter the selection of individuals into law enforcement that are open to multiple power
1: styles and training in multiple power methods. Um, Rob, it was interesting to hear you say that. You know, when I think back to my recollection of that account when me and my buddy were walking from the, the show, there was this feeling of why did these police officers feel that they needed to do that? We weren't confronting them. We were actually walking the other direction. Uh, We were harmless. I was smaller than I am now. I'm not a big guy, but I was a skinny freshman in high school at the time with the baby face and, and all the naivete in the world. And the fact that those officers still felt like they needed to use their physical power for no real reason, talk about it now, it definitely highlights the fact that maybe they had no other ways of expressing themselves other than that physical dimension of power. And I'm thinking if that's what police officers are trained with, and there's no no question why we're seeing some of the situations that we're seeing today. Yeah. And, you know, there's another thing, too. When you think of how that's reinforced
2: and then you start looking at the immersion of media and cop Mm -hmm. movies. Uh, Yeah, I just started doing this with my wife, which is to look at the single most important lesson. That comes out of a film with regard to the lead character, the protagonist of the film. What's the one lesson that person learned by the end of the film? And when you start looking at police movies and action films, the lesson, probably 90% of those films, there's no transformational, intellectual, social, ethical, transpersonal power lesson coming out of that. It's that violence works, power works, I'm a badass. And that's what we sell in the media today without exploring the multiple ranges and possibilities in power. So that combination of input and noise coming into the system without alternatives is the second level of a problem now from a media exposure perspective.
0: Yeah, that is so true. I think every single person that watches any movie today will agree with you on that. John your father as I understand it worked in the prison system and I'm wondering if there's anything that you would want to share in terms of insights that you found out from your father with regard to working in in that environment
1: yeah uh, it was sort of an interesting paradox you know having some less than favorable experiences with law enforcement and then coming home to a police officer wow <laughs> <laughs> but I had to love and respect and follow their rules in the house. <laughs> but um one of the things I learned about learned from my dad was that idea that not all police officers are bad, right? I I could see the real life of the one that I was living with and that was really helpful. It also helped me to see that working as a police officer, you're working in an industry of violence. You know, your job is to sort out and go into violent situations and resolve them whether you're ready or not. And there's a certain toll that that takes on the individuals that work in those positions. So my father, he was a police officer for Berkeley Police Department, but he also, (laughs) I don't know how he did it. This is, I think, his his way of putting us through private school. Uh, He worked two law enforcement jobs. He was a police officer for Berkeley Police Department, but he was also a sergeant and lieutenant was his highest rank, highest level of lieutenant at San Quentin State Prison. Uh, one of the most famous or infamous correctional facilities in the world. And it's sort of weird being proud of your dad for being an influential figure in such a renowned place, but also seeing how dark the place was, um, the issues that they fundamentally have to deal with and sort out as a correctional facility, uh, and the toll that that took on him. I remember being a teenager and, you know, you're just starting to come into manhood, 13, 14 years old, and Used to do things with your dad, like play catch and ride bikes. And at a certain point in my childhood, that just stopped. I remember one day wanting to go do what we normally did after school play catch, do something outside. And, you know, my father, I didn't understand it at the time, but I think he was just emotionally exhausted from the things that he saw and the things that he had to deal with on a daily basis it took the life out of him. And yes, he pushed through and retired after 30 years and is happy with his career. But it was a dark place, not just being at San Quentin, but just having to deal with the stress of a police officer's life. I am empathetic to, to that, absolutely empathetic to that. So that's sort of the paradox there, where there's so much change and there's so much wrong with policing in America today. But at the same time, I don't think it's right to just say a police officer's Are bad, you know. There's acronyms and abbreviations and slogans that are now thrown at police officers to talk about how bad or how evil they are, how abusive they are. But what people are not necessarily looking into is what created that police officer and his disposition in the first place. And I think it's important to look at them as they are people. They have needs. They are shaped, and they they either grow or, like you know, Dr. Rob was saying, their growth gets stunted or their development is arrested at a certain point. And that's why I think this conversation is so important, because I don't think it's helpful to just throw all police officers under the bus or throw them out in the cold. We need law enforcement. You know, there's mental health issues. There's things that happen in the world that need to be sorted out. But we have to look at the needs of all of the parties in place in order to fix the issue, not just one side of the story. You know what I'm happy for? Because I've I've noticed lately that
2: some of the decisions that are being made with regard to how to change the system is to really be clear about the calls that come in and which ones need people that are experienced in mental health, as opposed to sending a police officer to that call to understand like, what is this about? Is this a domestic violence or is this an argument that a couple's having? And what is the specialist with the background and the correct training and the correct power styles that would be best for the solution of that problem. So if you are going to alter that system and it's going to take a while, one of the things you could do now is, is understand the kinds of issues that are occurring and who is best prepared to solve those issues as opposed to someone with a more physical, emotional, manipulative, or direct confrontational power styles. So I agree with you, John, you know, that it's a combination of training and understanding how to bring out the best parts of developmental dimensions of police officers and the training that will reinforce that development. But in the meantime, there are other models in place, people that are trained in other specialties that can handle a lot of police work that is nonviolent in nature. Yeah.
0: Well, and I remember seeing recently the protests in New York, and one of the moments that they showed a number of times was a police captain from some precinct who, rather than responding in a authoritarian kind of way, he went down and was shaking hands. Now, this is the time of COVID. I don't know how wise that was, but he was shaking hands and engaging people on a personal level down there. And the entire protest from that standpoint in that area was peaceful. And it was probably because of that kind of response. And, you know, when we're talking about these power pathways or power styles, you could see that this man had more facilities in terms of how to react. He had more, more abilities in terms of how to react. He could judge the situation and draw on a number of his different abilities to find out which would be most appropriate for that situation. So it seems to me that the idea of training police in these other areas or choosing police recruits that are strong in these areas is certainly some way to go to help the situation. And going beyond law enforcement, John, you know, you're know you're an entrepreneur. You have a very successful business. When I introduced you, I mentioned that your company, We Are Sky, is a company dedicated to pro-social elevated branding. Can you please tell us what elevated branding is and why it's so important, especially today for businesses to adopt this approach?
1: Absolutely. I should probably start by talking about what elevated branding is not. So in the first few years of my professional career, I was fortunate to work at agencies, creative agencies and marketing agencies. And I saw a pattern pretty early on. And that pattern was a brand would come to our agency to ask for help. Maybe it was a marketing campaign or building a a website or something like that. And the team, my team would go back and uh, we talk about ideas and we present them to the client. And on our team, the director of marketing would share his opinion. And there would be this discourse about what was the right thing to do for this upcoming campaign. But at no point in my entire career did I ever hear any of the thought leadership in the room ask the question, how is this going to be good for people? How is this going to affect their well-being? And to me, that always seemed to be the most important question, but it was the one that was the most neglected or ignored. And at a certain point, I don't even know how to describe it other than you start to feel empty when you're working in this sort of purposeless kind of way. Money is an important tool, but it's not what our lives are made out of. It's not the important things in life. And so what I set out to do, it was how to use marketing, branding, products, content, in a way that was pro-human, pro-development, pro-social, pro-environment, elevation in the, in the world of psychology, I think, uh, and Dr. Rob, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but it's an idea that basically states that people move along through life on a path or a gradient or a timeline. And as they move along that timeline, hopefully they're getting better or wiser, or they're developing more, they're becoming more mature, you know, their life is unfolding and becoming broader and more well-rounded. You would hope that the mindset of a two-year-old is not present by the time they get to 70. You would hope that they evolve over time. That's fundamentally how people work. And Elevation is saying that as they move through that timeline, they should be reaching higher levels of understanding or of consciousness. And our theory at We Are Sky is that Brands not only have the opportunity to help people move through life in that way of getting better, getting stronger, and developing more power styles, uh, to use today's conversation. Not only do they have the opportunity to do that, but it's also a better business. If you want your business to stick around for years and you want to be a part of your customer's life, not just take money from them, but create a mutually beneficial relationship where both parties, The company and the customer are growing and evolving over time. It's a better business. It protects that business's future. The people are not just buying because they're compelled or they're persuaded to buy your products. They're buying your products because they're inspired. They're motivated by you. They're driven alongside of you to continue down this path of growth.
0: I think what you're really talking about here, John, is living above the noise, converted, into a business philosophy. And I personally, I think there are more and more people all the time who want to support businesses that place the personal well-being of their customers and, and their employees at a higher level.
1: In, in light of what's going on in the world today, you know, obviously we've sort of reached this point of emotion, feeling, angst when it comes to racial injustice, social inequity. You know, it has put brands in a unique spotlight than brands have never been in before. Brands are being expected to pick a side of where they stand on these topics and issues and be a reflection of the values of their audiences. Mm -hmm. And that's difficult for brands that are only in it for the profit. Right. And there are a lot of companies that are now faced with being able to make hard changes in order to stay in step with the changes that are happening to their audiences. Their audiences are growing. But the companies are not. And when the people are seeing that the companies aren't growing, it creates this philosophical alignment problem. And even today, before we we had this conversation, I had a number of conversations with the company that is wrestling with this very issue. And so I guess I wanted to just reiterate this idea that this idea of development isn't something that you know we created in in our office. People are changing and evolving. And brands are not these inanimate organisms that only stay the same. They have to evolve too. And so kind of going back to what Dr. Rob was saying about power styles in policing, there's internal components that need to be shifted even in the world of business so that businesses can not just keep up with how people are changing, but maybe actually lead them to a more preferable future. That's what we're hoping for. And we think that businesses have A beautiful opportunity to do that.
0: Well, thank you for that, John. And as you know, at Live Above the Noise, our aim is to help families and children become more choiceful, to take charge of their lives and create a happier, more successful, and more meaningful life. And I think that should be the goal of every business as well. So we want to thank you for the excellent work that you're doing in that regard. And also, of course, we really want to thank you for sharing your story with us today in such, such an insightful and deeply personal way. So we wish you the very best. And thank you again for joining us on Live Above the Noise.
1: Thank you. Thank you, Wayne. Thank, thank you guys for you know, the support and the work that you guys are doing as well. We're all playing our part to try to steer this thing in a better direction. And i um, glad to be alongside you guys in that movement. Thank you, John.
0: And if you'd like to find out more about John's company, We Are Sky, you can go to wearesky.co. Now, looking ahead to our next episode, we are delighted to have Dr. Michelle Borba joining us. Dr. Borba is an internationally renowned educational psychologist and an award-winning author of 22 books, including Unselfie, Why Empathetic Kids Succeed in Our All About Me World. She's appeared as an expert on the Today Show 140 times, as well as on Dateline, Dr. Phil, Anderson Cooper, and countless other programs. And on that episode, we'll be talking about empathy and why developing empathy is a key predictor to help kids succeed in our world of ever-increasing noise. And just a reminder, you can subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and many other podcast providers. So until the next episode, thank you for listening, and live above the noise. Hello, everyone. If you'd like to get our email update about new episodes and all the latest information, please sign up for our Noise Watch update on our liveabovethenoise.com website.